Hey, this is the Straight Dope Podcast, episode 57. I'm in an arts and crafts phase, so let's continue the trend here. And last time we talked about some of the things associated with carrying data and simplifying it in the field using the distance and basing a lot of your decision-making based off of calculations made from knowing the distance to your target, whether that was given to you or whether that was something that you used a laser rangefinder for. Trying to simplify your data management in the field and at the range is helpful, but there are times where that data kind of goes out the window. And so in this arts and crafts phase, and what I'm actually doing here is I'm writing out sketches on paper. I always I always scribble and doodle notes when I'm when I'm talking and when I'm talking to people. And I'm gonna put together like, you know, not not like an old school data book, but a new school data book that has the stuff that I like to think about and I like to keep a record of. And so this is essentially kind of talking through those elements that I'm putting into my little my little booklet. So having those range cards separated out into thousand foot DA is nice. Now, if you're like me and you shoot a lot of factory ammo, you're going to have to make new DA cards and new ballistic data cards on every lot of ammo that you shoot, even if it's the same caliber, even if it's the same type of ammunition. But I think that's helpful. Even though there are differences, you can make bigger scale generalizations about a caliber because you know most 6.5 Creedmoors shooting whatever bullet are going to be in the same zone. Now, the standards might not be sub-MOA accuracy with the data from one gun to the next, but it's going to be close enough where you can make some educated decisions. But regardless, I think it's good to keep a track and good to keep a record of that. And so I hang on to those old cards and file them away. But let's, let's back up a sec and talk about when data doesn't seem to line up right, because I, I'll go out and do tests. And when we've been measuring students at the unconventional skill assessment out in Fort Morgan, I'm recording a lot of data based on their caliber and their shooting. And I'm, I'm measuring their skills and abilities in isolation. And while they're doing that, sometimes I'll be taking a shot with a rifle or with ammo that I'm testing or just trying to validate. Also to test my wind reading throughout the day as well as a student's wind reading ability. If their shooting ability is such that there's more deviation in their positions, then we're not going to be measuring their wind calling as well or as effective on targets of various sizes. So sometimes I'll ask the student for a wind call and I'll shoot their wind call to see where the bullet goes and say, okay, you were off by two or three miles an hour. Uh, Let's figure out how you came to that decision and approach looking at it maybe in a way that can bring that variation closer to center and by allowing me to do some of the shooting and them to do some of the the spotting right or the decision making it takes out some of those positional variables that that people may not have worked out but what happens when your data kind of gets screwy and i think that that is really interesting because the old school data books, people would have their drop data, right? They didn't have Kestrels. They didn't have Magneto speeds or Doppler or whatever. They would just go shoot at a known distance and write down their drop data. And over the course of days, they would have a record of what that bullet and caliber did and performed at so that if they needed to take a particular shot, they could refer back to that data and know pretty well what the elevation was going to have to be for that shot. And so... Let's think about that for a second. I think that that would probably make a lot of precision rifle shooters cringe if I said, 
you know, let's go out, we'll have a thousand yard range or a 1200 yard range or 1500 yard range. And we're just going to shoot and collect our data. And then we're going to go off of that rather than go off of a ballistics calculator. Well, I think that if you shoot well, then that's a great way to do it because you're getting the exact drop for your caliber in those particular conditions at that exact range. But you're putting a lot of faith into a bunch of variables that you haven't isolated or tested. And so, um, when I record my data and I keep track of a lot of that stuff, I do know what hits and what doesn't hit, but I also have ballistic calculators to confirm it and to fall back on. But you, you've probably heard that if you put garbage into your computer, then you get garbage out of your computer. And that also falls back onto the equipment that you're testing at a distance. So to trust your drop data, either way, you've got to do some validation. You can't just plug in a velocity, plug in a bullet weight. And so let's troubleshoot some of the things that I've seen and some of the fixes and then some of the, you know, your, the faith-based issues that come up and how they got fixed. Because I do think that this is an arts and crafts kind of thing because we need to have a record of it so that we can show when a variable arises, you know, what, what was being used and has this variable ever been come to your attention before. And, and that's something that is well worth recording because if you don't, um, it, could, it could bite you at the last minute or it could bite you in a way that you, that you don't want. So well, let me just, I'm just going to tell you what, what I do to get my data to begin with. What I do is I put on a magneto speed and I measure the velocity. I chronograph the velocity and I usually do six to 10 shots for that velocity spread. Recently, I've had a lot of trouble with Hornady ammo. I had been shooting Hornady factory ammo for years and had no issues. But in the last year, multiple different lots of multiple different calibers have had um, standard deviations of around 30. And around 30, you're going to see enough vertical that the targets of the sizes that we're shooting at, uh, you're going to have high and low shots if you've got a good shot group. And so I've kind of put those, in, I mean, that's, it's, we're talking about thousands of dollars of ammunition that I can't shoot at competitions anymore because that standard deviation isn't acceptable to me. So what I've started to do is just buy burger and use that because those standard deviations have tended to be in the single digits or, or, or actually are always in the single digits. Now I test them on four different barrels and some of the other, the horny ones that were bad, I, I did 6.5 PRC, uh, two different bullet weights, and then 6.5 Creedmoor. Uh, I think I tested four different lots, and they all had really high SDs. Uh, now, the ones that I bought uh, a few years ago, SDs are all lower. So my guess is they changed something in their manufacturing. I'm not going to follow that up because I don't shoot for Hornady, and I don't really care because I just want to shoot, and I don't want to spend my money to test their shit. But So when I've been shooting recently, all the trophies that I've won this year, I think we're at seven, and all of them have been shooting Burger Factory ammo. I haven't hand-loaded it at all yet. And uh, I don't particularly care to handload all that much. I can do it, but but I'd prefer just to buy a factory and go and shoot. So um, all of my data is coming now from uh, using the the Burger Factory ammo. Although I, I did do some some of this data was was off of uh, just going out with a lot. But if I buy a couple cases, you know, assuming that if it's going to be good. Um, you now I can run with it. These cases are essentially worthless at distance. So, um, you know, and I, and I like to shoot paper, but I haven't been training as much. But, but anyway, let's, let's get back uh, into how, how I've been doing stuff. So I take the velocity and I take six to 10 shots and I get an average. 
that six to 10 shots, you know, make sure that everything is measured correctly in my Kestrel. I rely on the Kestrel. I don't, I don't put programs into my, um, my laptop. I wish I, I, w- I wish I had some of them. Um, but I don't. And so I make sure that my height over bore is right. My twist rate is right. You know, you know, all the variables are set, you know, I'm in yards, not meters. I, I want, um, the, the units to all be squared away and I'll go through that and I'll look and I've noticed that when I see other students now I shadowed a bunch of other classes at the last couple of years so I've, I've seen a lot of students go through other instructors courses now what I was I wasn't I was looking for you know what the students were getting and seeing and how they were acting and just kind of look at trends of what how they came and a lot of people came with bad stuff in now, I would have said that the garbage in garbage out sounds good and when you troubleshoot that's often what you find but I wouldn't have expected so many people to have bad data going into that and some of the bad data that I saw is they just plugged in the velocity bullet weight and information straight off the box of their ammo and um, they didn't look to see if the other variables were set so their head over bore was wrong their twist weight rate may have been wrong Um, their units weren't necessarily calibrated with the units of measure provided to them. So it may have been meters, shooting yards, and so on and so forth. So you really want to go through all that. Now, now that, that's pretty easy to do, so I'm not going to be too long-winded about it, but I get my um, velocity data. Now, I got a uh, Labradar, and I was using that because it's hard to get uh, my, my carbines hooked up well to my magneto speed, so I thought it would be nice to be able to have a Labradar, and, and I'm getting similar velocities, similar um, standard deviation information from that, although the Labrador is trickier with going back and forth from suppressed to unsuppressed and heavier and lighter rifles, you have to kind of tweak it around a little bit. Uh, it, it, it's a little bit more finicky anyway than a Magneto Speed, so I fall back default to Magneto Speed because I think they're easy and they do a good thing. Now, I did see someone this weekend that had a little box, that uh, Doppler that clipped onto the Arca rail and mounted onto the rifle, and the data that he was getting as people were checking their zeros was spot on across going from one shooter to the next to the next to the next. And I'll try to get that data from him and the information on that little box. But I was impressed enough that I want to get one and test it out. But I plugged that in. And listening to uh, the bullet guys, you know, uh, and hearing about the extensive testing that Berger does on their bullets, I, I don't question the BC stuff. So when people say, well, I shoot out and I adjust my velocity at, you know, five or 600 and then, I go out to distance and I adjust my BC. I think that there is a lot of risk in that, and I've done it well before in the past, but I've also done it wrong in the past. And when you get one of those variables off, it might work at your home range, but when you travel to another environment, like a massive environmental change, if you adjusted the wrong one the wrong way, you're going to get effects that you didn't anticipate. And so I, I tend to go in with my velocity and then I start with the box BC of the bullet, and I really haven't had any issues. In fact, um, I've been using the Hornady uh, Fordoff uh, Kestrel alongside the Applied Ballistics one, and it was a you know the two days before this recent match, I had to desperately go grab another twelve boxes of of Burger. Uh, I didn't have a lot of time to test it. Plugged in the BC, chronographed. The chronograph plugged in both of the datum to um, those separate ballistics calculators and the drop data. You know, I shot at a thousand and then I calibrated off of that thousand yard, the, the group that I shot at a thousand yards, and they were both 
accurate. The only difference that I had in those was wind drift. And I didn't, you know, I haven't explored that enough to know what the difference is between how one calculates wind drift versus the other, but the elevation was spot on. And then I did a couple shots and it worked, but I think that's good to know. You want to know your velocity spreads because that's going to determine the vertical spread that you're going to have at distance. So you could shoot a great group at a hundred yards, but at distance that group's going to grow vertically just based on the fact that those bullets are traveling at different, different speeds because they're at different speeds. The time of flight is different. And the time of flight is the time that that bullet's exposed to gravity. Gravity's going to pull it down. So if it's going faster, it's going to impact higher. If it's going slower, it's going to impact lower because it's been exposed to gravity for a longer amount of time. So those standard deviations that you're seeing expose themselves out at distance. And I think that's really important because if you're talking about uh, half of a mil vertical at 1,000, um, and you're shooting at targets that are one MOA, you're going to have a tenth or two off the plate, even if you make a good range. And so that, that, and then if the winds get really strong and it, now, you, you know, we're talking about statistical, so you're not necessarily going to miss, but there is that chance that if you miss high or low, you may have done everything right and your bullet went over and you don't really want to put those chances into, uh, those investments. So I take that data and then I, I write it down, I record it. If I've ever had to make adjustments, I, um, in the horny one, I do the axial form factor and it goes up and down a little bit. Well, I was out testing, um, one of these lots of horny and I was also testing my factory rifle and a new scope. So there was all these three variables that, and, and ended up actually all of them having issues, but you don't know that, right? So you go out and you go to shoot. And I walked my I walked my rounds out. I did like 300, 600, 800, or uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, and then 1,000. And then I came back like an hour later, and I was going to reverse it. And I shot at 1,000 and went under the target. Shot at 1,000 again, went under the target. Came to 900, went under the target. Went to 800, went under the target. Holy crap, what's going on? So I, um, at that point, what do you do, right? I'm sure you've probably heard of this. And, and the reason I'm talking about all of this stuff is that you can have good data and something could go wrong, but what was it that went wrong? So I had good ballistic data. I had good velocity. I had good, uh, like, test. And, and I thought, okay, my initial... Uh, feeling was I had been testing ammo, so it must have been an ammo issue. So we re-chronographed it, and it, it chronographed back out, um, uh, you know, pretty close, pretty close. But when we plugged in what the drop would be at the distance, it was almost, you know, 100 feet per second or something slower than what we were seeing. And so Frank has this sheet on Sniper's Hide, and they call it weaponized math. And, and I don't know... Um, you know what, how they came up with the name, but, but it's a way for you to just write down essentially like an old school drop data. But if you don't have any information, but you've got targets going out to distance, you can work out the drop required per hundred yards. And so I, I recommend, I think it's a great way to go and get hard data and not be exclusively dependent on one piece of equipment, like a Kestrel or, I mean, or a magneto speed. Um, 
And essentially what they do is they shoot at 100, and then they go out to 300. And for most of our rifles, you're right, it's about a mil. But you figure it out, and then you multiply it by, um, by a variable. And that variable changes every 100 yards as you go out to 1,000. But you use the drop data that you received at a particular yard range to make the calculation for the next 100-yard range. And then you shoot it, and if you have to adjust up or down a tenth, then you do that. And then you plug in that new accurate drop to calculate what your hold's going to be for the next yard range. And, and going through that process, first of all, shows you that you don't need to know the velocity to hit stuff. But this is a way to save some money and time getting shots on a plate to get the, the vertical drop that you write down. Now you have every 100 yards, you've got your drop data. And that drop data you've confirmed on a plate, and that's not going to change. And so if that drop data is, I mean, you know, that, that's just the way it is, right? Because it's the same bullet weight, it's going at the same speed. So if something changes, it's not the bullets, it's not the ammunition. So uh, at first I thought, okay, it's got to be the ammo, but we validated it using Frank's stuff. And if you go to Sniper's Hide, you could look up, the weaponized math sheets. And I would just print those out and have them handy. And you might think, well, no, I got good data and I totally trust it, but there will become a time in your shooting where you go out to the range and stuff doesn't line up. It's good to have that record of, okay, this is what I shoot at 800 with this ammo going at this speed, so on and so forth, so that you know it's going, you know, this should work. And if it isn't this, maybe it's something else. So then I started to go through my, my torques. Um, I had been t- testing a factory rifle that had um, a different type of barrel and all of a sudden it went from accurate, accurate, accurate to it couldn't even shoot within six feet of the paper at 100 yards and the barrel itself broke um, without getting into too many details like it legit like kind of came apart on the inside and couldn't shoot but at first I just had no idea what was going on. I kind of default back because I, in the past I had scope issues. I figured, shit, something's wrong with the scope. And then I picked up the rifle and was checking torques, and I felt things rattling, and it was rattling in the barrel. So, um, so that, that's one thing that you say, okay, well, it, you know, it's not the ammo. Maybe it's not the scope, but you check all your torques, and then you start working backwards. Um, when you're shooting on paper, at 100 yards, you have to check your parallax very well. Now, this is something that I think is worth uh, mentioning, that in the past I thought 300 and in was parallax, and the guys at Leupold uh, were you know, pretty adamant that at 300 and in, you, know, you really needed to check your parallax because you could get significant reticle movement if it was off. And everybody has different eyes, but the parallax, you know, lining up all those lenses could make, in terms of a precision rifle shooter, could make them much less accurate inside of 300. And then after that, it was largely focused. Now, I recently I've seen scopes that have had parallax issues out to 1,000. So it can't just be 300 in. I think it's worth checking your parallax. When anything goes wrong, one of the first things that I want to check is parallax. And you wiggle your head left and right. And if that reticle moves on the target, you have parallax. What I didn't do is up and down. And I found out that if the internals, if there's, if there's something going on, I don't know exactly what it is yet, but if there's something going on, you can actually have different settings for left and right and up and down. Now, that sounds messed up to you. It, sounds, it totally sounds messed up to me. There's an issue 
that I haven't put my finger on yet, but I have seen it myself firsthand and, and verified it with other people's eyes, that some scopes, when you set parallax free left and right, there's parallax up and down. Now, if you have up and down parallax, you're going to have vertical issues, even if you don't have the windage issues uh, that, that, you, that you removed. Well, it turns out back when I did that uh, at the beginning of this episode, I said I walked my data out to 900, and then I walked it back in. Well, in the meantime, I went to 100 and shot some paper stuff. And so I had set my parallax from, you know, one to three to six, seven, eight, nine, a thousand, adjusting the parallax as I went out, came back to a hundred. And then when I went back out to a thousand to walk it back in an hour later, the parallax was off. Not that the left and right, because I'm really neurotic about the left, right, but it turned out there was vertical parallax set in. And that vertical parallax was three or four tenths vertical when the left and right was removed. Now it sounds totally crazy, but um, I think that you need to write down the zones where your parallax at the, you're at the distances that you're shooting out. I think it's worth tracking and writing down on paper because if you've got parallax that's that significant, we're shooting at targets that are smaller than the amount of parallax that I saw with these two rifle scopes that had that left, right, up, down difference. And I had heard about it, but I'd kind of written it off and thought, well, maybe they just didn't shoot groups consistently through their positions. And that was my fault because then I saw it uh, firsthand and uh, I'm currently looking into it, but I'm trying to figure out how to, how to you know, put my finger on that issue. So anyway, with the arts and crafts thing, I think you need to write down your weaponized math, basically going old school and writing down your drop for 100, 200, 300, 400 at the DA that you're at and just have it so that you know it and that can, that can come into play later on, especially when we start talking about speed drop stuff. But knowing what your drop is consistently, and it's good just to get, you, know, you just kind of know that, um, because you know for most of our calibers, around 300, we're shooting around a mil, and then it goes up about six tenths for the next 100, and then about seven tenths for the next 100, and then eight or nine, and then it's about a mil for a zone. So you're, we're talking about like every 100 yards, it's about a mil. So when, when you get comfortable and used to the drop data, Things, when things seem like, man, that doesn't quite make sense, you can refer back to that hard data and you can know, oh, shit, I'm on the wrong gun profile in my Kestrel. Now that makes sense, right? If, you, if you've been shooting your 22 or your 223 and now you're out shooting your 7 Wisdom or w whatever, and you're like, man, that drop just doesn't make sense. Um, you know, I should be under 7 mils at whatever. And, and this is telling me to hold 15 mils. Um, you don't just go ahead and do it, but you notice because that can cause big problems. And it's not uncommon for people to have the wrong gun profile pulled up on their Kestrel and they're just plugging in numbers and pulling the trigger. And then when they miss, they just shoot, you know, maybe another 20 or 30 rounds trying to figure it out rather than stop, refer back to your hard data, right? Refer back to your arts and crafts and figure out what it was before you start wasting more money just by sending lead downrange. Um, I think that that is super important to talk about. It's super important to address because things go wrong. And so I'm starting to record everything, my drop data, my velocity, my load stuff, my um, wind drift. I'm writing down the, you know, the difference of my height over bores, the, um, 
the parallax settings on my different rifle scopes for what is kind of what what's good for here, what's good um, at different DAs and humidities and light conditions. You know, I'm just kind of trying to keep track of that. Now, you might tell me what you think the answer is, but I'm going to have a record of that. And that answer may or may not corroborate with your story. But I think that if you have all that stuff written down in a nice, compact kind of um, like journal with sections, then you'll be able to diagnose things faster. Note how different scopes have different levels of parallax. And where does the parallax stop and turn into just focus? You have to test your scope for that. I get a lot of questions about trying people interested in budget scopes or cheaper scopes that you can go out and get. And so I've been, I've actually been testing and shooting cheaper scopes. And I've, I've, I've noticed actually that many of the lower price point scope, not, not of the big companies, but of other companies that are trying to come in the market have amazing tracking, have amazing features. The only drawback is the glass quality and for the type of shooting that we like to do at competitions, that glass quality doesn't make that big of a difference. Um, but it's hard to figure out which ones have good reliable products, especially if I only shoot one of them maybe I got a good one or maybe, you know, whatever. So, so it's hard to make conclusions based on that. But I have noticed that at least the ones that I have, um, can stand right up next to the very most expensive scopes that I have. The only difference is a little bit of glass quality, but for what we're shooting at, that glass quality hasn't really been a huge factor. It's only a factor if I take them out at sunrise, at sunset, and I kind of set them up for failure, I can see the difference. But um, but anyway, uh, let's get back to this. Recording your data and creating kind of an arts and crafts table of your drop of the settings in your various kestrels. If you do change the BC, what's the original BC? What's the BC that you calibrated it to? You should probably write that out, the, you know, the documented whatever BC or the adjusted or the, um, you know, if some, if Brian Litz has a special curve for it, you know, what, what's the data for that versus what you changed it to? Uh, because in the event that you have to go back and troubleshoot, you could note, oh, at 600 yards, you know, I changed my velocity by 100 feet per second. And then at 1,000, I changed my BC by, you know, to, uh, whatever. Uh, you know, sometimes people change it a lot. And, and so those variables might be variables that you untuned things uh, by in an attempt to try to fix things. So, so anyway, and, and maybe you did the right thing. Maybe you didn't. It's good to have a record of that and what you changed it from and what you changed it to so that when you go back through and check things, um, you're able to do that. Because with that parallax issue, when we just adjusted the drop data based on that, if I was to have adjusted the BC rather than um, have caught the fact that it was a parallax issue with the scope at a distance, I didn't think you could have issues like that. Um, that would have completely um, thrown off all of my data. And then you're talking about bad data feeding bad results rather than continuing to find the explanation because it just didn't sit right. We did uh, put our fingers on onto that and it, and it worked really well. Now, you got all that stuff, you go out and you shoot and um, you should know what I had a, um, a bleh, my brain fart here. I went to a match and my scope ring spun. And 
it was a new scope, and, and apparently I didn't tighten it down. Or if I did in my house and I went out, it was probably, you know, 70 degrees in my house and 100 degrees at the range. And my turret spun. The, so the, the trick, um, you know, that, that I mentioned on a previous podcast was, you know, be able to um, know the come up where your zero was from having it maxed down, but people have zero stops. And so somebody actually reached out and said, you know, because of different zero stops, you just go the other way, go all the way to the top. And then note how far you have to come down until you're zero. And so I think that's worth writing down. It's just a test that you don't have to do very often. But um, you have your zero, right? And you have you may have a zero stop or whatever. But if that zero stop or the turret spins and you're not sure where that goes or if something's wrong with that stop or, or whatever it is, rather than messing with that, um, if you know... I thought if you went, if you bottomed out the turret and then you came up to your um, your zero, you would know how to set your turrets without having to actually shoot. But the reverse is true, and then you don't have to deal with different types of zero stops or different types of turrets. Uh, if you went all the way to the top and then you came down from the top, you're not going to be fighting any of those issues. And so that, that seems like a much more clever and a better way to surpass other issues that I hadn't accounted for. So um, in your book, note how far from the bottom or how far from the top your turrets come back to zero. And probably the same thing for the windage, um, your left and right windage. If, if those things come loose, you can just simply, you know, uh, you know, tighten it down, go up to the top, retighten it, and then come down however many clicks it needs to to be back at zero, set your turret, and then you're probably good to go. Now, the dust is another issue. Know the effects of dirt in your gun system. Lots of manufacturers hate talking about this. Um, Lots of gun people hate talking about this, but I go out in dirty-ass conditions, and I have a lot of issues with my rifles. My gas guns have had problems in the dirt and now we're playing games and we can go out there with clean rifles we can go home we can clean them at night but if if what if you're stuck in the field and it's dirt and something's wrong and then you just can't take that shot right that one shot or you take one and you can't take another one because your trigger doesn't work or your bolt doesn't cycle or your ammo doesn't go into battery you need to know how your rifle system operates when it's dirty so that you can know what to bring with you to keep it clean or to get it back up and running if something fails. I mean, the AI trigger for the ATX, the comp trigger, has had a ton of problems for me. And I've had multiple triggers go down. I know a dozen guys who had the same issue. And I carry lighter fluid with me, right? If, something, if it doesn't reset the trigger, the trigger doesn't work, you shoot that lighter fluid in there and clean it out as best you can, cycle the bullet bunch. It takes a lot of lighter fluid. And so I have lighter fluid in my pack whenever I have that gun with me because even though the old school trigger is supposed to be the most reliable trigger out there, the new trigger is not. And you have to keep it clean. If you don't keep it clean, there's going to come a time where it will not fire for you. At a competition, fine. You're going to lose some points. You're going to have to clean it, bring lighter fluid or, or um, alcohol that you can rinse it out. You need something that will evaporate once you push out all the dust and dirt and get it running again. And that isn't what some people want to hear, but it's the reality because we're spending a lot of money going to matches. We're spending a lot of money on equipment, and 
Um, I think that that's not acknowledged enough out there that we're spending thousands and thousands of dollars to shoot on ammo, on travel, on matches, to go and have that all thrown away because somebody's equipment doesn't work when it's dirty sucks. But you have it now. You're spending money to keep it running and to keep going to matches. The way to do that is to understand how your system works and know how to get it back up and running because failures are going to happen probably with anything. And the best way to salvage points is to come in with a game plan already for when things can go wrong. So if you need backup triggers like the jewels or the diamond triggers, the trigger tech, broken several of those. If I'm using a trigger tech in my impact, I have a backup in my pack. Somebody else's is going to go down too, so you can give them your backup trigger if they have a trigger break or go down. But there's going to be times where stuff like that happens. You need to be able to take it apart, change it, fix it, get it back up and running. The AI triggers, you can rinse out and you can get them running again. The trigger techs, you need to swap it out with a new one, so have a backup trigger with you. Right? It's a couple hundred bucks, but it's a couple hundred bucks. When you're at a match where you spend a couple thousand bucks, I would rather have that couple hundred dollar insurance policy to fix it out. Now, it, it'll kind of blow your match results. A couple years ago, I went to the Punisher positional, had a trigger break. The sear broke, so I could actually flick up and down the, the bolt, and eventually it would reset it. But it caused you know timeouts on all the stages, and it was a real drag. Um, but you can still salvage some shooting. Um, and, and so, you know, day two, I, you know, was much better than day one because day one I was timing out, flicking up and down my trigger all day and it was really frustrating and it sucked, but, but it sucks when you invest so much into something and have it go down. But if you note and document that stuff in your book, you carry that book around with you, you're going to be able to, uh, get yourself back up and running as quickly as possible and diagnose and answer the questions that need to be answered to get your system working again. Okay. So, uh, although it was a tangent, I think it was a good one. I'm going to keep going down this arts and crafts section so that we can produce kind of a little booklet uh, that we can have about our rifles and about our data. So I'm going to um, kind of end it here, and then I'm going to uh, drink some coffee, and I'll probably record another one uh, on more field stuff. And so until then...